Hello, my name is President Trimpo, and you are listening to In the West Wing, a political history podcast brought to you by WKNC 88.1. And in this week's episode, we will be talking about the end of partisanship as we know it and the collapse of political parties altogether. Well, maybe not that, but that's certainly what people believed was happening in what is known as the era of good feelings. Now, before we start our discussion today, uh, I just want to have a small bit of a housekeeping note. Uh, while I'm recording this, uh, I am recovering from a, a, a very nasty cold. So if my voice sounds a little bit more nasal than usual, that's why. Uh, I apologize uh, if this doesn't sound up to the quality of the uh, previous recordings. Um, but... Uh, that's life. That's that's having a cold. Uh, but anyways, uh, let's get into our discussion today. Uh, so where we left off, uh, America sort of ended the War of 1812 triumphant. And uh, uh, it, it seemed that, that, that the Democratic-Republican agenda was sort of on the upswing uh, with, with our status quo ending of the war. But we're actually going to be jumping back and sort of having a little bit of overlap uh, with the previous episode, just just to give some some context that was left out uh, in the previous episode. Uh, so there was a presidential election in 1812. I don't think I mentioned that at all. Uh, but yes, there was an election in 1812. And this was one of the first signs that there was something sort of not good going on within the party structure of the Federalist Party, which had been defeated in the three previous elections up to that point. So, in the election of 1812, it was the incumbent president, James Madison, a Democratic-Republican from the state of Virginia, facing against DeWitt Clinton of New York, another Democratic-Republican. Yes, that is correct. The Federalist Party did not field their own presidential candidate in the election of 1812. This was the first uh, national election held in which the uh, Federalist Party did not participate uh, since uh, the election of 1792, which is when uh, George Washington ran for re-election. So why exactly did the Federalist Party not field their own candidate? And that's simple. Uh, they were opposed to the War of 1812. Uh, but they also recognized that they probably wouldn't perform very well on a national level. Uh, and so uh, they sort of formed a, 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 an unofficial alliance with the uh, sort of opposition of the Democratic-Republican Party uh, from the North that sort of felt that the party had become dominated by the southern wing of the party and was opposed uh, to the War of 1812 against the British. Uh, and so Federalists on a national scale voted for a Democratic-Republican for president. Uh, DeWitt Clinton was the mayor of New York City as well as the lieutenant governor of the state uh, and was the son of, I believe, George Clinton, uh, who was vice president under uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, however, 
They did not officially endorse Clinton, uh, uh, but the number of state uh, Federalist parties did endorse uh, uh, Clinton and put him under their their party uh, uh, on the on the ballot. But uh, in any case, uh, Clinton solidly carried the Northeast, uh, but ultimately failed to contest Madison in the South uh, and performed poorly uh, in the mid-Atlantic states. There was a relatively minor effort uh, by some Federalists to elect Rufus King, uh, who was an outright Federalist candidate, uh, but this was not supported by the majority of the party, uh, who favored a, a sort of unofficial endorsement uh, with DeWitt Clinton. So with yet another handy defeat under their belt with the election of 1812, uh, the Federalist Party was not doing terribly well. Uh, but they saw an opportunity uh, with sort of the War of 1812 dragging on into the late months of 1814. Uh, a number of state governments uh, up in the Northeast, uh, which were dominated by the Federalist Party, uh, had grown to really be discontent with the carrying out of the War of 1812. Uh, many uh, in the region were very unhappy with the progression of the war. There was a sort of opportunity that was seized uh, by politicians in the region uh, to really make a serious effort to oppose the War of 1812. Uh, and so uh, several state governments uh, in New England uh, organized a convention uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, which became known as the Hartford Convention. It was primarily filled out uh, by Federalist politicians uh, and was organized with the purpose of, of creating a list of specific grievances against the previous Democratic-Republican administrations of James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, uh, but more specifically, very specific complaints against the War of 1812, a, a list of, of uh, amendments uh, that, that the convention demanded be enacted uh, were made as well. Uh, and these demands included ending the embargo of trade uh, against Great Britain and France, uh, which had decimated the livelihoods of many New Englanders, demanding the requirement of a two-thirds majority in Congress for any declaration of war, uh, a limit to presidents only serving a single term, and an end to the Three-Fifths Compromise, uh, which the Three-Fifths Compromise, as a reminder, uh, was a, a policy in which uh, slaveholding states would count three-fifths of their slave population towards the total population of the state, which sounds confusing. Why would that matter? That was how congressional apportionment was decided. So slave states essentially would get a, a, a large boost in the number of congressional representatives that they would get based on their slave population. Uh, and so rightfully, many New Englanders recognized that that was an unfair advantage for these states which is why it was in the list of demands uh, made by the Hartford Convention, uh, because they wanted to sort of fix the political process uh, of the country. While it was never adopted, uh, there were some rumors to suggest uh, that uh, one of the, the issues uh, suggested at the convention uh, was for the states of New England uh, to secede from the Union. As far as we're aware... None of the attending delegates ever considered this uh, secession. Uh, however, it was a rumor that was spread, uh, and it seriously damaged 
the Federalist Party in the in public opinion. So in early February of 1815, uh, three delegates were sent uh, from by the convention to Washington, D.C. However, by the time that they arrived, the Battle of New Orleans had already been won by General Andrew Jackson, uh, and the Treaty of Ghent had finally arrived in, in uh, Washington, ending the war officially. Uh, and so the demands of the Hartford Convention seemed ridiculous, unnecessary, and downright seditious. Uh, the delegates left D.C. in absolute shame, uh, and public opinion towards the Federalist Party as a whole really seriously soured, despite the fact that only a small fraction of party leadership even participated in the convention. While the Federalist Party did not field their own candidate in 1812, uh, 1816 would be the last time a Federalist candidate would appear on a presidential ballot, uh, with Rufus King running in 1816 against Secretary of State James Monroe. Why was this the final time that a Federalist candidate would run for president? Uh, and it's sort of complicated, but but ultimately it has to do with the sort of the absorption of, of uh, Federalist political ideas uh, into the Democratic-Republican mainstream. Uh, under President James Madison, uh, several Federalist policies were adopted, uh, such as the chartering of a national bank, the establishment of a protective tariff, uh, and a number of other policies that, that really appealed to moderates and, and sort of draw drew in uh, Federalists uh, into the Democratic-Republican Party, uh, especially as the Federalist Party uh, became increasingly seen as a sort of a radical party of secession and, and political change. Additionally, uh, there was a very serious lack of organization within the Federalist Party at this point. During this time period, uh, most presidential nominations for major parties were, were, were done through, through a, a uh, nominating convention, usually hosted uh, in, by the congressional delegates of, of that particular party. Uh, the Federalist Party failed to do this in 1816. Rufus King, despite being the party's nominee in several states, was only nominee by default. Uh, he was not nominated by anybody. It was just sort of a de facto decision that he was the, I guess you could say, the party leader. And so he was the candidate, despite the fact that there was no real official decision to nominate him by anybody. Uh, and ultimately, Rufus King only won three states. I believe those states were Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Delaware. And that's a very, very poor showing, even with the fewer states that the that the union had at the time. That was just the sort of the cherry on top of just yet another absolutely devastating defeat for the party. Uh, and because of that, the party just kind of drifted off into obscurity on the national level. And so as the, the Democratic Republican Party absorbed these Federalist ideas uh, into their platform uh, and sort of adopted these sort of uh, more moderate stance on, on, on many policies, the core constituents of the Federalist Party uh, were brought into the Democratic Republican fold. Uh, and increasingly, prominent Federalist politicians aligned themselves with the Democratic Republican Party, uh, most notably John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams, of course, is the son of John Adams, the only Federalist to have held 
office of the presidency, uh, which I think is is very telling that, you know, and and that's also to say John Quincy Adams and John Adams politically really were not that distinct. They didn't have many major policy differences. And despite that, they served under two different political parties. And so with that, the Federalist Party drifted off into political obscurity. They only seriously continued to participate uh, in elections on the state and local level, uh, specifically in, in New England states with uh, Federalist governors being elected well into the early uh, 1820s. But that largely ceased to, to exist on the national level of politics. And so with the election of James Monroe to the presidency in 1816, uh, we're sort of entering the period that is generally known by, by historians as the era of good feelings. So what, what exactly is the era of good feelings? Well, the era of good feelings is, is, I think, sort of best described as one of the brief moments in American politics where there was really only a single national level party. Uh, and with that sort of one party de facto sort of regime uh, that led to a lot of idealism in sort of the realm of political thought at the time. And so th there was sort of this, this idea that America could go back to having politics without parties. Uh, this sort of stems from sort of the myth of, of the presidency of George Washington, sort of the idea that uh, American politics would be so much better off if we just had uh, independent candidates running on their own merits rather than having uh, sort of an ideological party backing. And so with, with the sort of one-party dominance under uh, Democratic Republicans and President James Monroe, uh, people sort of felt that they could return to this sort of state of, of ideal politics. Uh, but in reality, as we'll see as, as the history progresses, that's impossible. Different constituencies within society, different interest groups inevitably clash with one another. Uh, you can have big tent parties in politics, but you can't fit every single voter under the same tent. So what exactly was the agenda under James Monroe and the Democratic Republican Party? Internal improvements was what was on the agenda. Uh, by internal improvements, I mean infrastructure programs. That's what we would most likely refer to them today. Uh, but at the time, the issue was sort of framed uh, under the, the label of internal improvements. Uh, and this was essentially the first large-scale federal program for infrastructure uh, that had been seriously enacted. Uh, and that had long been one of the policies of the Federalist uh, Party. And the issue of, of infrastructure and in national internal improvements had sort of been a, a point of contention uh, within Democratic-Republican circles. And that's because the Democratic-Republican Party early on evolved from anti-Federalist political ideas. Uh, but with the absorption of sort of moderate Federalists, that's, that sort of anti-Federalist ideology got tempered somewhat. Uh, and so with that, large-scale federal infrastructure programs seriously began in earnest. Uh, one striking example uh, is the Federal Road, which began in 1811 and ultimately was completed in 1818, uh, which connected the Ohio and Potomac Rivers. 
which this was the first ever federal highway. Uh, canals and other interstate infrastructure programs were also developed, uh, namely uh, uh, things like the Erie Canal and sort of other canal projects meant to connect large waterways in the United States. The reason that there had been sort of a struggle to get these, these infrastructure programs off the ground uh, is because there was a very serious debate over whether or not this was constitutional. A long time there had been sort of an interpretation that uh, the federal government was not explicitly granted the ability uh, to build infrastructure uh, connecting states. Uh, however, under James Monroe, uh, the, the, the executive branch increasingly sided uh, with those in favor of internal improvements. Why is this? Uh, that's because the development of infrastructure really assisted the economic growth of the country and made it easier for Americans to move out west and sort of expand and settle uh, the territories that were seized uh, in uh, the Northwest Indian War uh, and also uh, crossing into the Louisiana Territory and sort of ex developing the infrastructure of those regions. Another fairly contentious issue uh, under the presidency of James Monroe uh, was the admission of new states. Uh, as America expanded westward, uh, the issue of slavery uh, became increasingly pressing. Uh, in rapid succession, slave and free states were paired together. Uh, so the states of Indiana, Mississippi, Illinois, and Alabama were all admitted to the Union uh, under the uh, second term of James Madison into the first term of James Monroe. Uh, and these were not terribly contentious. It was sort of a very clear-cut issue in each of those, whether they would be free or slave states based on you know the majority of the population supporting or opposing slavery. Uh, and so it was under sort of this very geographic distribution that the, the issue of slavery was sort of kept uh, sort of under wraps and bottled up. Uh, however, when the territory of Missouri petitioned for statehood, uh, it was clear that the new state uh, would permit slavery, uh, despite the fact that Missouri was relatively farther north than most other slave states. Uh, and so New York congressman, a Democratic-Republican congressman at that, uh, James Talmadge Jr., uh, introduced the following amendment to phase out slavery in the new state. Provided that the further introduction of slavery or involuntary servitude be prohibited except for the punishment of crimes whereof the party shall have been fully convicted and that all children born within the said state after the admission thereof into the Union shall be free at the age of 25 years. Now, the wording of that is, is a bit opaque, uh, and I recognize that. Uh, I'll just to put it in very simple terms. Uh, what it essentially stated is that uh, slavery would be prohibited in the state, barring under uh, as a punishment, so, so prison slavery, which is actually uh, still legal and constitutional today in the United States. But uh, in any case, um, barring prison slavery, uh, all people born within the state uh, will be free once they reach the age of 25. So that essentially what it's saying is that the children of slaves in the state of Missouri, uh, once they became adults, would be freed. And so that would essentially 
kill the institution of slavery within the new state. Uh, and this, this caused sort of a, a massive uproar. Uh, Southern slaveholding states sort of were frustrated because this was uh, the first time that the issue of slavery was even questioned on the federal level. Uh, up to that point, uh, the issue had largely been just left up to the states. Uh, uh, ultimately, a compromise would be made uh, within Congress. Uh, and Missouri would be admitted fully as a state with legal slavery, with no amendments uh, attempting to phase out the institution. Uh, however, uh, no new state from based out of the Louisiana Territory or north of the 36th and a half parallel could be a slave state. Uh, so essentially, nothing north of the sort of southern edge of Missouri could be a slave state. Uh, and then on top of that, the state of Maine would be admitted as a free state along with Missouri at the, about the same time, uh, which Maine, side note, uh, is one of only three states to have been carved out of the territory of a pre-existing state, uh, the other two states being Kentucky and West Virginia. The state of Maine uh, was uh, originally sort of a, a, a separate uh, piece of land owned and under the administration of the state of Massachusetts. Uh, however, it eventually grew large enough that it could be its own state independently. And what's so interesting is, is that this sort of represents the first time that there was a very serious political clash on the federal level between slave and abolitionist interests. Uh, and it's sort of the first of, of many more conflicts to come and, and will be increasingly become the political issue in America. Now, at this time, it's still up to sort of compromises and, and political debate. But as we go down the road in this series, we will see slavery become a hotter and more dangerous issue down the line. And so with that, uh, I should mention uh, that James Monroe uh, won re-election to a second term unopposed in the election of 1820. He is the only other person and George Washington to run for president without any opposition. Uh, James Monroe would win every single state and would be elected by every single elector in the Electoral College, barring one. Uh, one elector would cast their votes for Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. Uh, this was not out of some serious push to block uh, Monroe from being elected president, but it was sort of a, a, a protest uh, to indicate the belief that uh, no president should be elected unopposed, uh, barring, of course, George Washington. And so entering James Monroe's second term, uh, we see the sort of further development of his foreign policy ideas, uh, something that is articulated uh, in what we understand today to be the Monroe Doctrine. It was not called that at the time. Uh, that's sort of a, a more modern label. Uh, but essentially, it's best understood that... that uh, James Monroe had long been in support of Latin American revolutionary movements, such as uh, under the sort of uh, movement of, of uh, Simon Bolivar in, in Venezuela and Colombia, uh, and sort of broader independence movements for countries like Mexico, Brazil, Chile, Argentina, Central America, the Caribbean, etc. Uh, based on sort of the idea that many of these independence movements were rooted in the same sort of Republican ideals that America held. And so 
in James Monroe's 1823 annual address to Congress, uh, the president articulated uh, his foreign policy doctrine. Uh, America would not interfere with existing European colonies, but interference by European powers against independent American states would not be permitted by the United States, as is sort of uh, articulated in, in the following excerpt uh, from that address. With the existing colonies or dependencies of any European power, we have not interfered and shall not interfere. But with the governments who have declared their independence and maintained it, and whose independence we have on great consideration and on just principles acknowledged, we could not view any interposition for the purpose of oppressing them by any European power. Despite this sort of uh, gesture towards protection uh, towards Latin American countries, uh, many Latin American politicians were, were rightfully very suspicious of the motivations for this new doctrine. Uh, they sort of viewed uh, this as an attempt by the United States to assert power over the entire Western Hemisphere. Uh, and in future, this doctrine would essentially be used as justification uh, and distorted to justify America intervening against other Latin American countries uh, and sort of installing sort of puppet regimes much, much later down the line. Uh, this suspicion of, of American interests uh, was best articulated by a Chilean politician and businessman, Diego Portales, having said, quote, But we have to be very careful, for the Americans of the North, the only Americans are themselves. Now, uh, jumping ahead to the election of 1824, uh, we start to see the cracks in the era of good feelings begin to form. We, get to, we, we see the sort of beginnings of a, of a new development of partisanship in politics uh, because, realistically, not everybody can fit under the same political party. And so at the end of James Monroe's presidency, there was no real clear natural successor uh, to the long Virginia president dynasty. As a reminder, uh, from 1800 to 1824, there were three presidents in a row who both who all served two terms, all Democratic Republicans, all of them from the state of Virginia, all of them being sort of like-minded in ideology. And that was, again, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe. Uh, but there was no clear follow-up who would be the person to come up after James Monroe. And that's partly to do with the fact that party politics lacked the same clear structure for nominating a new candidate. Uh, so while modern uh, political parties enjoy the process of uh, party primaries or, or uh, caucuses and, and party conventions and sort of being able to have the public or, and also party officials determine which candidate they wish to back most, there really wasn't the same process at the time. Uh, and so ultimately, the race for the, being the next Democratic-Republican president of the United States was a free-for-all. Uh, ultimately, four major candidates would emerge to run for the presidency. James Monroe's Secretary of State and the son of John Adams, John Quincy Adams, uh, a war hero from the War of 1812, and sitting senator from Tennessee, General Andrew Jackson, Speaker of the House from Kentucky, Henry Clay, 
uh, the Secretary of the Treasury and former Senator from Georgia, William H. Crawford. And these four candidates each represented very distinct subsets of the Democratic-Republican coalition. John Quincy Adams essentially represented the sort of moderate subset of the party who had kind of fled from the Federalist Party and sort of been absorbed into the Democratic-Republican fold, which makes sense. Adams, of course, was the son of the only Federalist president of the United States, John Adams. Uh, and accordingly, he performed most strongly in the states uh, of New England and sort of the mid-Atlantic, you know, Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, sort of that region. Uh, and many of those states had been former Federalist strongholds. So it makes sense that you know, a relative moderate would perform well there. General Andrew Jackson sort of represented sort of the, the, the hard ideological underbelly of the Democratic-Republican Party. Uh, of course, the Democratic-Republican Party had been born from anti-Federalist ideology, but it had sort of been tempered and sort of kept as a, a sort of elitist exercise, sort of focused more on political theory rather than, than hard practice. Jackson formed sort of a, a, a populist coalition, uh, sort of opposed to the, the sort of moderate direction that had been taken under the presidencies of James Monroe and James Madison. And accordingly, he competed in the most states out of all the candidates, uh, winning in the South, Mid-Atlantic, and Midwest. Henry Clay is interesting. He was sort of a, a, a political apparatchik, sort of a, a, a creature of the, the party apparatus sort of, of 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 not only the party apparatus, but congressional functions. Uh, he was sort of a real creature of Congress. Uh, and he sort of represented the interests of the young Western states of the Union. So those uh, those would be the states of Kentucky, Ohio, Missouri. Uh, these Western states would benefit most from the infrastructure programs of the internal improvements. Uh, and so... You know, he he sort of recognized the importance of, of a federal program to develop these states economically. Uh, and so accordingly, in the election, he performed best in that region. And finally, William H. Crawford. Crawford represented sort of the old guard of the Democratic-Republican Party. He was a Southern Democratic-Republican uh, and sort of was, was the establishment of the Southern wing of the party. Uh, sort of attempted to be in the mold of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and James Monroe, uh, he really was kind of trying to position himself to be the fourth man in that long line of Virginia presidents. I, I, I say that despite being you know, a senator from Georgia, he was born and raised in the state of Virginia. I think he sort of held personal allegiance to Virginia. And so he sort of thought of himself as sort of a natural successor, but politically, nobody really cared at that point. Uh, and ultimately, he only carried the states of Virginia, Georgia, and Delaware. Uh, and throughout this entire election cycle, uh, the policy supported by the candidates really didn't matter a whole lot to voters. Uh, what mattered most was the rhetoric of the candidates, the personal character. Uh, with the expansion of suffrage, uh, the right to vote, to white men who did not hold property— uh, Jackson was able to surge ahead sort of an unprecedented way. Uh, Jackson was, was, was a political outsider. He was sort of seen as, as a strong man, uh, uh, a rugged Western frontiersman who, who 
ultimately would be able to capture the plurality of the popular vote and, and the largest share of the electoral vote. There's a lot to say about Andrew Jackson, both on a personal level and a political level. His life is is really crazy, and, and there will be an episode dedicated entirely to his presidency. Uh, but just to sort of put it in brief, Andrew Jackson represented sort of a new breed of, of wild political populism that up to that point had not really been exerted in the same way. Uh, and so his surge ahead and, and, and political prominence in this period represents both sort of an important step in the evolution of American democracy and also a very dark, ugly side to the way that uh, the public can react and behave in, in regards to politics. Also, an important thing to note uh, is that John C. Calhoun of South Carolina would be elected as the vice president. He would be the, the undisputed winner of, of the election for vice president. And that's because he was both the running mate of John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. And so despite the fact that the the electoral vote for the presidency was fractured and split, Calhoun was able to consolidate enough electoral votes to outright be elected vice president. Ultimately, no candidate would win an outright majority through the Electoral College, uh, and the vote for the presidency of the United States would be thrown to a contingent election in the House of Representatives. This is the second and final instance of this occurring in American political history. Uh, essentially, I'll, I'll to briefly explain the mechanics of a contingent election. If no candidate receives an electoral majority on the first vote, uh, a second vote will be held in the chamber of the House of Representatives in which each state's congressional delegation is granted a single vote. And so, you know, the majority party of, of each state's delegation would essentially decide which candidate uh, the state would vote for. And so whichever candidate receives the most votes from a majority of states uh, ultimately is elected president. Uh, and through this process, uh, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, and, and, um, and William H. Crawford would advance to the contingent election. However, uh, Speaker of the House Henry Clay would be eliminated because he came in fourth place uh, in terms of electoral votes. Through this process, John Quincy Adams would be elected the next president of the United States. However, people at the time, more specifically Jackson's supporters, alleged that there was a, quote, corrupt bargain, uh, which stole the election from Andrew Jackson. Uh, and it very specifically accuses Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams. An important thing to say is that Andrew Jackson not only won the popular vote, but won the most electoral votes out of any candidate uh, through the election. Uh, and so what is sort of the merits of this allegation that would really hang very heavy over the election? Henry Clay definitely aligned most with John Adams on policy. Uh, and, and what's alleged is that he instructed his supporters in Congress to vote for Adams, giving Adams the presidency. Uh, in turn, Adams appointed Henry Clay to be the Secretary of State, which thus proved that there was this sort of corrupt deal struck. Uh, 
However, it's important to say there's no real hard evidence that there was any sort of formal agreement between the two. Uh, there's sort of just political speculation and hearsay. But it's sort of interesting to note that this is sort of the first stolen presidential election. There would be a number of elections later down the line that would be very contentious. Uh, and this sort of sowed the seeds for, for the chaos and sort of populist rage of the Jacksonian Democratic Party, uh, which will sort of be the, more the focus of, of next episode of In the West Wing. And so with that, the era of good feelings went out in sort of a very messy and ugly way. Uh, and starting in, in the next episode of In the West Wing, we will see sort of the development of the next American party system, sort of the revenge of Andrew Jackson against the, the, the corrupt bargain of Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams, and sort of the political consequences of, of Andrew Jackson's populism, both on the political life of the country, the economy, and just sort of how it generally affected sort of the entire course of the nation. As always, I have been your host, President Shrimpo, and you have been listening to In the West Wing, a political history podcast brought to you by WKNC 88.1. Special thanks to those who helped give history a voice in this week's episode of In the West Wing, with Spencer Groton as James Talmadge Jr., Caitlin Carroll as James Monroe, and Bug LaRue as Diego Portales. The intro music used for In the West Wing is Star Spangled Banner by the United States Marine Band, and our outro music is Libertad by Iriarte and Pessoa. 